I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to The Chronology, the podcast that pieces together the puzzle of films from one of the world's greatest filmmakers, Satoshi Kon. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm playing along. So join us on our twisty-turny quest into the world of Satoshi Kon. Jake, we're back in the chronology. Yes, uh, there seems to be some kind of shadow looming behind me that has my silhouette. I keep looking in mirrors and seeing myself, but slightly delayed or someone else entirely. Um, why have you brought me back to this place, Michael? Well, for a very special episode, of course, we did the miniseries looking at the films of Satoshi Kon way back when. When would that have been? 2020? 2019, even? Mm. Years ago. Ancient history <laughs> in podcast land. But we were very excited when uh, last year at the Cannes Film Festival, a film premiered called Satoshi Kon, The Illusionist, which is a documentary looking at the life and work of Satoshi Kon. And then we squirreled that away and hoped one day to not only see the film, but record a podcast about it. And then we went one better, where we saw the film, recorded a podcast about it at a screening that we hosted at the Manchester Animation Festival. Um, Actually, technically the UK premiere of the documentary as well. So we've just been up in Manchester doing that. Yeah, and um, um, what a treat to share it with a crowd who are obviously so into animation, so into con already. It felt like almost like a live music event as well, where there was a kind of palpable excitement in the room beforehand, waiting for the lights to come up or come down. <laughs> Telling me there's not palpable excitement at the cinema <laughs> when you go, Jake. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It just felt very special because Khan as an animator uh, mm. is so regarded. And for that being part of the animation festival, they just felt like there was a real kind of focused attention and excitement on the fact that that film was getting its premiere there. And to be a part of it was just so lovely. Absolutely. There's the vibe. So they take over Home, which is the sort of cinema theatre art complex in central Manchester for a week. And it's animation fans, animation industry veterans, students coming from all over the country. Yeah, the vibe was amazing. What they've built, uh, the animation festival, 
with uh, Steve and Greg and Jen and the team. Just amazing to to go there and have a little taste of it and then be a p- small part of it with this screening. And then we met a lot of people afterwards at the book signing. Uh, they cleared us out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're sellouts now, quite literally, which was um, an, a very nice surprise. Um, but I suppose in, in true Satoshi Kon fashion, we're going to kind of replay and mirror this whole intro again in just a few seconds but an entirely different environment an entirely new setting um so before we flip to that there is one thing that we need to do which we Mm -hmm. need to ask you for our our lovely listeners yeah so one podcast episode that we've been teasing for many weeks now is the one about the my neighbor totoro stage production that's currently about halfway through its run Um, at the Barbican in London. We've seen it. Steph has now seen it as well. So we'll be recording our episode shortly. But we would really love to mark this historic production by opening up the mailbag. So if you've had the chance to see the production, please send us a message. You can do so. That's on Twitter, at Ghibliotech or Ghibliotech.pod on Instagram. Or send us a good old-fashioned email, Ghibliotech at gmail.com. We don't want to go too deep into spoilers. Maybe we'll have a dividing line between the non-spoiler and the spoilery discussion uh, because there's so much uh, delightful surprises in that production. But please send us your thoughts, your hopes and dreams and expectations and whether they were met or subverted (laughs) um, when you finally saw My Neighbor Totoro on stage. But that's next episode. This episode, we're back talking about Satoshi Kon. Before we start, just want to say thank you to Pascal Alex Vincent, the director who's been so helpful, sending us lots of tidbits and anecdotes from the production that you'll hear scattered throughout our chat. Before we dive in, obviously the people in the audience that we're speaking with in this discussion had just seen the film. Hopefully, listeners, you'll have a chance to see the film someday. But uh, in lieu of that, let's have a read of the synopsis for the film. The anime filmmaker Satoshi Kon died suddenly in 2010 at the age of 46. He left behind a short and unfinished body of work, which is nevertheless among the most widely distributed and influential in the history of contemporary Japanese culture. Ten years after his death, his family and collaborators finally speak out about his work, while his heirs in Japan, France and Hollywood look back on his artistic legacy. Satoshi Kon the Illusionist illustrates the trajectory of a solitary author whose life was dedicated to comics and animation for adults. So let's start this podcast all over again, Jake. Here we are at the Manchester Animation Festival. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to The Conology the podcast that leafs through the library of films from one of the world's greatest animation filmmakers, Satoshi Kon. I'm Michael Leader. I'm Jake Cunningham. And this is the Manchester Animation Festival. Thank you very much, everybody. So we have just watched Satoshi Kon, The Illusionist, the, the UK premiere of the documentary that premiered at Cannes last year, directed by Pascal Alex Vincent. Jake, wow, we've talked about Satoshi Kon so much on the podcast in the past. We did a the Chronology miniseries where we went through his films as director, one by one, with also an episode on Paranoia Agents, as well as his manga series Opus and the short film Ohio, which was the last piece of film work he produced before his death. And now this documentary comes along. Where should we start our chat? Well, I think, yeah, just thinking of us as uh, participants in his artwork, um, we've, we've viewed them, we've talked about them, but that's always been very much from a distance, even though we've spent so much time, whether that's on the podcast, whether that's in the writing of the book or doing events, whatever it might be. Um, we're not part of that process other than as viewers and appreciators. And what was so lovely for me for watching this film was to get that first-hand experience mm, and mm. hearing from the people that were close to him what he was actually like as a character. I think we, we've spent a lot of time looking at him as a director, at his craft and what we can see in the films, but almost viewing it at a micro level on the day-to-day activity, like who the man is when he actually walks into the office, mm. like what he's like as a, as a colleague, not just as a director. Um, that was the thing that I really appreciate about this. Yeah, absolutely. And so much of what we enjoy doing when we look at these filmmakers and filmographies for the podcast is the arc of the career. Looking at close at the films and the fil- how the films came to be and then creating the story of the career. And with Satoshi Kon, there's so much in the way of sort of mythology and legend around him as a filmmaker. There's a lot of adoration from fans, other filmmakers uh, and so on. But there isn't much out there in terms of definitive texts. In English, the English language world, there is one book that is out of print, and it's by Andrew Wasmond, who's actually in the film. And actually, that book is also called Satoshi Kon, The Illusionist, which is nice and confusing. Um, But the one thing that we never really get when we do the podcast is to get those first-hand appreciations. The emotional level is what struck me. Mm -hmm. As fans of his work, I don't know, people in the audience tonight, 
have been fans for long enough that they remember when he died and the sort of loss the animation industry felt at that point. He really was, with the sort of response to Paprika and the way that it premiered at Venice, there was such a buzz around what he was going to do next. And it was a loss. Whereas now, when it's all reduced down into tweets and podcasts and Reddit threads and IMDb forums, letterboxed reviews, it can be very abstracted. And so in this film, hearing from those collaborators and hearing their responses to working with him, but also their response to the loss of him, really moved me. Mm. And particularly as well, people you wouldn't necessarily um, link to his work. Mamoru Hosoda is absolutely somebody on in this that I, I loved seeing because we also did a mini-series about Hosoda's work and of course they're kind of contemporaries he's a bit younger than Khan but in terms of their films you now absolutely see that they would be in dialogue because Hosoda would make films about the internet and our, the interface between the personal and the digital in the way that Khan's films are about the personal and the media landscape be that film, pop music the internet and mm. the technology of our minds and so that emotional level really struck me and that sense of regret and surprise you have I think it's Taro Mackie the producer who fell out with Con for many years or at least Con fell out with him and he says they they finally reconnected and made up and said well, let's get a drink someday and that day never came mm. and there's so it's the fact that the, the documentary really captures the fact that the, the end we, to us the filmography is complete but to the people who worked with him, it never will be because the relationship just didn't, doesn't, there's no full stop there. And so do you think like, as we've kind of poured over these films and watched this and written about them, that the main thing for you coming out of Satoshi Kon, The Illusionist, is the people, the characters, rather than necessarily the, the analysis of the films? Well, when we've, absolutely, because when we first started the podcast and we just only did Studio Ghibli films, that's, a studio where they wrote their own mythology and all the characters from Hayao Miyazaki to Isao Takahata to Toshio Suzuki, the producer behind it all, they are larger than life figures. And Khan, in terms of his stature as a filmmaker, is larger than life, but we're very much focused on the film. So what this has is, even though it's a talking head documentary that could play very easily on BBC4 on a Friday night, um, sandwiched in between Top of the Pops compilations. Um, I love the fact that this exists for that because as a fan of Japanese cinema and animation, we don't get these sorts of mm. films. So to, to have that human face and personal view and a look at the characters involved is invaluable. Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you think about documentaries to do with artists. There's always a, a, a challenge for the director of the documentary to figure out how much of themselves they want to put into it. And so just recently, on both sides of that spectrum, you've got Moon Age Daydream, the uh, mm -hmm. Brett Morgan, David Bowie documentary, which is very much trying to enter the spirit of David Bowie and feel like a part of him and reflect him in its form. And then you've got a documentary called All the Beauty in the Bloodshed, which is going to be coming out soon, which is about the work of Nan Golden, the photographer. And that's much in the same way of this. It's, it's a kind of formally quite standard documentary that wants to showcase the artist's work and you don't actually have the director getting in the way of it <laughs> and I think if any filmmaker came in with the uh, the chutzpah to try and emulate Con or reflect Con's work in their own work 
I think it would be a, a cheaper product. And I'm glad, as you say, that there might be a crowd of people who don't know anything about them that could flick this on mm-hmm. and suddenly enter a whole new world of animation of cinema that they don't know anything about. I mean, it chimes so much with what we want to do with the Ghibli Attack project as a whole, which is you may have heard of Spirited Away, you may have heard of Akira, read this book, listen to this podcast, and we'll take you on a journey through the filmography. And that's, if, as I said in the intro, this was meant to be the beginner's guide to Satoshi Kon that could play internationally. Mm. It absolutely fits that bill perfectly, I think. Yeah. All right, then, who's who's your MVP? (laughs) My MVP, so the MVP of the interviewees. So I've mentioned Mamre Hosoda because I love him. He's such a thoughtful man in his films, but also when he speaks. I love, and this is a, an odd one, I, it's, a, it's, an, it's an odder inclusion with every passing year, but Jeremy Clapin, who is the French director who made I Lost My Body, which I think premiered on Netflix in the end a couple of years ago. It's about um, a hand that becomes chopped off from a body and then goes across Paris to be reunited. It's a really wonderful film. But I love, and maybe it's also the, coming out of uh, being very English and feeling very inarticulate and then you have some wonderfully articulate and eloquent French people in this movie and he says at one point that watching Con's movie is like uh, osteopathy for the brain which I think captures the way that the, how intelligent formerly audacious but intelligent they are you've got to meet them on their level and you'll have an, have an experience mm-hmm. and come out with your brain chemistry change it's, I think he is an honorary MVP Who's, who is it for you? Um well, I think Masa Mariyama for me, just because of the the reveal that you get at the start of the of the film, where something that we talk about so much with Khan's work is uh, his editing, his approach to transition, like the ability to drop seamlessly one scene into the next, into the next. So you'll feel like you're falling through these films, uh, and they're constantly surprising you. The way that the the rhythm of them just is constantly both changing and abrupt and fluid at the same time is incredible. And Mariama immediately taking credit for that, yeah. <laughs> like Which, uh, like a great anime producer. Yeah. So one the, the sort of secret hero of our podcast in to- and on, as a whole is Toshio Suzuki, who is sort of the Alex Ferguson of Studio Ghibli, where he he is the the manager who manages these great talents, but also plays them off against one another, and also weaves the story the narrative around the studio and likes to paint himself as the hero of every story and that seems to be what Maso Mariyama does although Maso Mariyama I must say has one incredible career if, if any of you are only hearing his name for the first time go and look him up and read about Madhouse which was formed in the early 1970s by anime veterans at that point and created such amazing um, independent or original anime work over the years plus some incredible adaptations from long 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 running manga as well but he as a chaperone or as a person who inspired the next generation of filmmakers from Hosoda to Kom Masaki Yuasa so now Katabuchi he his sort of fingerprint on the, that next generation of anime is really something yeah. um if only we had time and energy to do the entire madhouse catalog <laughs> cuz it's heaving we need to talk about Darren <laughs> so Darren Aronofsky I don't know how many I mean, we have least people here who've seen con films before but how many people are very much invested in this long-running sort of not really beef how would you describe it uh, uh this what, micro saga <laughs> yes <laughs> between darren aronofsky and satoshi Kon, or at least in the um in the tweets and the forum threads of the fans of satoshi Kon's work and how darren aronofsky was very clearly inspired or some would say ripped off uh perfect blue 
in Requiem for a Dream and also then again with Black Swan which they don't mention mm. in the documentary there's another shot or two in there that's very much uh, reminiscent of Perfect Blue there we're still I, I find it so amazing that um, Pascal Alex got to get Darren Aronofsky on record because he's never really been f as on record as he is here about the timeline of this this exchange as he remembers it or as, as he wants to tell it this idea that Pi came out he went to Japan he heard about this other filmmaker and he happened to be writing Requiem for a Dream and saw Perfect Blue and emailed Con and said I need a scene can I homage it and Con seemed was it very self-effacing but very honoured to, to be uh, homaged in this way and was very much aware of it and then Aronofsky, Aronofsky says something about oh there was also something about buying the rights to adapt the work but that didn't happen whereas Con there's his blog and there are various interviews online that people have translated and also now that we've seen this we also know that Con isn't a fully um, you know a, 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 a fully believable sort of narrator either because he as many people say, was a nasty guy or a prickly guy as well. But he has said in interviews that he was fully told, he, he fully believed that Aronofsky had bought the rights to Perfect Blue, and that's why he was fine with that happening. But then it was only later that he found out that, that wasn't the case. I really th have a feeling this is something that, because no one's going to really tell well, us the full like truth. That's the thing. Well, Aronofsky is in the perfect position in that from his side of the story, there is no paper trail and also show us the emails also satoshi Kon is dead so <laughs> yes exactly and the only people that will really go and dig into the blogs are the hardcore fans maybe and they're in a bubble themselves um but i love how a documentary like this tries to have the definitive take and you just don't believe darren Aronofsky. <laughs> there's something about him maybe it's the fact that his films are so provocative and he well part of me thinks that he wanted to shape the narrative and that's why he's done the documentary and actually it would have been better to not do the documentary if there was actual legal things to deal with because you wouldn't go on camera uh, yeah so <laughs> can we have a show of hands so we have here the sort of darren Aronofsky, it was all homage and con was fine with it and then we have the con slash con fans darren ripped me off and um so let's have a who, who's team con Okay, a couple. Okay, there's a few more, some shy voters here. And who's Team Darren? Who believes Darren Aronofsky? Fair enough. I mean, it's I one word against some, some tweets, right? Yeah. But the other thing, to, to skip ahead a little bit, somebody w w I would realise have heard from that wasn't in this was Christopher Nolan. Because mm. you have the sequence in the documentary of the detective in Paprika where he's running down the, uh, the, uh, the hallway and the hallway is... You know, melting at, at his feet, and that is very similar. Well, I mean, even more egregiously is is the bri the bridge in Inception mm -hmm. as well. Walking up to it where it's a mirror, and then it cracks, and that is almost like just a re yeah shot for shot. Thank you, shot for shot from Paprika. It is, ma and so I w yeah, I would have liked to have seen Christopher Nolan, but I think there is there is a kind of a swathe of filmmakers whose input. Mm -hmm. I would really have liked to have seen in there as well yeah. um, because I think obviously it's, it's it's quite a small documentary you don't necessarily have the reach to get everyone you might want to and you don't want to clog it up with lots of different voices but I think it would have been interesting to see the the other voices who weren't just contemporaries but the people who have been inspired by Con and put it into their own work in their own way maybe so um, Pascal Alex Vincent, uh, in, in, in lieu of giving us a formal introduction 
uh, sent a few reminiscences from the production and I'll be reading a few of these out as we talk but one that's related to this was he said he didn't feel brave enough to ask Christopher Nolan to be involved but Darren Aronofsky was very glad I asked him to be in the documentary. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and sort of similar to what Jake was saying, somebody I would love to have heard from would have been Guillermo del Toro, who is such a fan of animation and such a champion of cinema from the, uh, the world over. But he said, Guillermo del Toro immediately said yes, but eventually couldn't make it because of the very long post-production on Nightmare Alley. Mm. So, but yeah, someone like Ryan Johnson maybe would be really interesting because he's definitely intrigued by the narrative formal trickery with stuff like looper yeah um, well like and well within in a very similar school would be edgar wright as well who's mm -hmm. very much a guy who's almost at times too focused on how you can transition from one scene to the next even uh putting narrative to one side just to get the coolest transition which i yeah. think not in the case of con but maybe in the case of mr wright yeah i think um pascal alex also mentioned a couple of the other in interviewees that we presumed would be in the documentary that weren't in there so when Khan was coming up as a manga artist before he moved into anime he was lucky to work with two major voices in anime and manga so you have Mamoru Oshii in there who we worked on, an, on a manga with he also worked a lot with uh, Katsuhiro Otomo who isn't isn't in the film he said and this I think some of these are very revealing and maybe even sort of give you a bit more information about who Khan was the person almost. He says, we met Katsuhiro Otomo twice. He was very hesitant. And then one day, production, the production company in Tokyo found in their mailbox a handwritten note from him saying, this is going to be a no. Satoshi Khan was too much trouble. Or something that meant I went through too much trouble with him. Um, and Pascal Alex says, I was very disappointed. One of the producers said to me though, Pascal, don't be upset. You now have a handwritten note from Otomo himself. Sell it on the internet. Uh, he, he made great pains to say he's not sold it on the internet yet. It's very safe in a drawer. And similarly, um, when you think about Khan's films, the style of them, you do have the look of them. You've, so you've got um, art directors and animators. You've got the producers who brought them to life. You also got uh, the screenwriters and the source novelists mm. who behind it. The one, the other thing that we think about and we hear all the way through the documentary is the music. And um, you know, when it comes to Susumu Hirasawa, um, apparently they he he refused to be part of the documentary and did not give an explanation. So I love that a documentary about mm. this about this filmmaker who always kind of would leave you with so many questions afterwards. You watch the documentary that's supposed to be the beginner's guide and you come away with so many questions. That's perfect. <laughs> that's a perfect beginner's guide. It gets you hooked, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Almost like the key at the end of Millennium Actress, which is the key to, it's, it's the pursuit. Chasing him. Chasing but him. But he was Satoshi Kon the whole time. <gasps> there you who, go. Who would have guessed? Um, all right, so that's, that's a good look at who is missing from mm -hmm. this documentary who we might like to have heard from but following on from that point what's missing because this is a very kind of condensed view of his work mm -hmm. um and this is very much his his filmography his feature filmography in tv but it, it, there is a passing mention to other work but i think there is what i would say is like key parts of his oeuvre that is missing from here that I really would have liked to have seen explored, particularly Opus. Mm. Um, and Opus, if anyone's read it, is an amazing manga that in a very Satoshi Kon way 
went unfinished and uh, pages just started disintegrating (laughs) within the narrative itself and it is about it's a very self-reflexive story about an artist working on the project and Satoshi Kon himself never could properly finish the project and it sat in a desk unfinished and the whole thing became this amazing metatextual almost autobiography of Kon and it is a really incredible piece of work you actually did see in the credits of this a little image from it a little black and white image from it um and it's a book that I always go and tell people to go and buy and read because it is amazing. And I really would have liked to have seen a bit of insight on that. But just because this is very much him as a film director mm-hmm. and you want to see him also as, as an illustrator, as a writer for a book on the page, not just for screen. Yeah, and there are so many points throughout where some of his contemporaries or his colleagues talk about how he was a complete artist. I think mm-hmm. Hossida's final um, statement is that if you stood up to him, stood next to him on all the attributes he would win because he could do the art he could he's the storyteller he's the filmmaker he's got the vision he's the visionary and so for me some of those early points in his cv before perfect blue would have been interesting to hear more about um f- whether that would be his work as an art director and background artist layout artist on things like rujin Z, which is an amazing um uh, anime film that Otomo produced after um, Akira. Um, also, the short film that he pretty much did everything apart from direct, from the Memories anthology film that's called Magnetic Rose, which is by far the best short in that anthology, and it's the first one, so you don't have to watch the whole film if you want to catch it. But it's a, again, he appears fully formed in that short in terms of, it's, it's, a, it's actually a sci-fi horror, psychological horror, um, in deep space, which is very different from all his other films, which are so urban or so sort of grounded in, 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 in at least a sort of reality. Um, but that playing with perspective and the psychological and the warping of realities mm. is all there. And we did, of course, we asked Pascal why. And of course, the answer is the film would be three hours long if you included all the things. Because also there's the short film Ohio, which I, I mentioned in the in the intro, um, which I don't think you see at all. Do you see that at all? Yeah, I saw that at all. Of course I did. No, no, I mean in the film. Oh, right. So I think you're asking me. You out. <laughs> <laughs> we did a podcast about it. But that's a, that, that's a very short film of basically a, a young woman waking up in the morning. It's so, it's so good. And it's about the sort of splintering of your your perspective on the world when you're still waking up and then finally when you have that cup of coffee or whatever yeah. it is, you become that one whole person again. Um, but it would be several hours long. Mm. Uh, so yeah, Pascal did say he loves all those things and would, if he had time, um, go into de- depth. But he didn't have the chance to. Yeah, um, it's it's really it's a real treat to just dive dive into not only his films but all the things that kind of go go into him, the things that he was inspired by. I think mm-hmm. that's something that I always love to hear about from these filmmakers that get painted as being so unique. Uh, in a landscape and so original and that we've never seen anything like it before and that's why I love that the mention of George Roy Hill's adaptation of Slaughterhouse-Five which is like when you read it you think this is totally unfilmable and it's a book that I really love but I do think that adaptation is brilliant and you go and watch it and you can absolutely see Con falling over himself about how it's been put together mm-hmm. because it does feel in my experience although you might see a Christopher Nolan film or a Darren Aronofsky film in terms of its form, the closest that you might get 
to a live action Satoshi Kon film. Mm, absolutely. And that's something that, you know, Darren Aronofsky reinforces it, which is he talks about how he saw Kon in his own little cocoon of genius. And no, he wasn't. He was absolutely alive to mm. not only collaboration, but inspiration from so many, um, so many different channels. Uh, in, on his blog, he posted something like 500 essential movies and then posted another 500, another 500. And um, Pascal said that his his widow, um, Satoshi Kon's widow, Kyoko, invited the production to go and look at his DVD collection. And he was a big Hitchcock fan. Um, he had a box set that he kept watching while he was making Perfect Blue. He also had a Monty Python box set and was a big fan of Terry Gilliam. So maybe, of course, maybe Monty Python's one thing, but Terry Gilliam, you can see the connection with his films, perhaps. And he was also a big fan of Twin Peaks, which is, of course, a direct link to something like Paranoia Agent. But that's something that we love to do is to break this idea of the lone genius who appears fully formed out of nowhere with no connections to anyone because that's never true and also that sense that japan is this exoticized space where they do things differently there and are so closed off from the world when in fact actually it's been this dialogue for centuries you know, for centuries with literature but for with cinema for decades and uh, we see that time and again with the filmmakers at Studio Ghibli, how alive they are to European and American influences, just maybe not the ones that you'd expect, because mm. with a very patronizing view of animation, you'd say, oh, did you watch Disney? And of course, they're, they're a bit more esthetic than that. Um, but And I love about this film is that sense that the filmmakers, because there are several directors in this, none of them are closed off from one another. Pascal said that uh, both Mamoru Hosoda and Hiroyuki Okiura um, both got very emotional during the interviews as he was a close friend. And they're three filmmakers. As, as I sort of said earlier with Hosoda, you never would consider them to be, you wouldn't necessarily mention them in reviews of each other's work. But of course, they're, they're of a similar age, working in a similar industry, making feature films. They are alive to each other's influence and inspiration, which I think is a much more rounded, mature view of any creative art, really, uh, better than to reinforce the old genius thing. Yeah. Well, I think thinking of him as as the genius in the room, as the director, something that I really found insightful with this was the idea of Con as the boss, mm -hmm. and that like, what is he actually like as the colleague? And it like you've got those two contrasting stories. Contrast. Good. Um, where you've got someone who just doesn't get the project gets thrown off the project gets fired by him and ultimately they go and do see eye to eye again but you think god this guy's this guy must be a horrible boss throwing someone off like that but that was a case of just not understanding it mm -hmm. but then you've got other people there who present an almost collegiate approach to the animation industry which mm -hmm. is not something like thinking of studio ghibli which is a very hierarchical place there was mentions there of people like really really mucking in and really kind of fielding ideas from other people making it feel like he wasn't just this lone voice crafting this thing in his vision that he was very open to these other ideas and that was something that i definitely didn't have in my head in, in as an image of con mm -hmm. i couldn't um, i wouldn't have thought of that and so that's an insight from this that i'm really glad that i got yeah it's aya suzuki yeah. um who said that he was sort of fiercely committed to bettering the workplace conditions and supporting young animators, mm -hmm. which jars very much with um, uh, who, who would it have been? It would have been um, 
it would have been Nobutaka Ike, the art director, mm. who said they fell out over Paprika. And he's very clearly very emotional mm. in those scenes. I love with Mamoru Oshii. I, 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 he says some very interested, sort of very coded or polite yeah. ways of saying things. That final statement of he sought perfection at all costs. It's like, what costs? But um, Oshii, for anybody out there who, who sort of followed him, of course, he made many many great landmark anime features but ghost in the shell is probably the most famous one in in, in the west uh, but he's also something like the he's the the great provocateur of anime he wrote an entire book about how rubbish studio ghibli is called the studio ghibli no one talks about which is sort of him slaying all the sacred cows about ghibli because he did very he very closely made a film very he came very close to making a film with ghibli in the mid 80s where it would have been miyazaki and takahata producing a project he was going to direct and um which is amazing think of those three geniuses of animation sitting around a table together but apparently once they sat around a table together they immediately fell out and the project didn't really live much longer than that but um so he carries with him a reputation for being a bit of a firebrand and he'll say it like it is and pascal in his email said Oshii was the first one we interviewed and the producers warned me that he would probably be, probably be very grumpy and that he'd certainly say unpleasant things about everybody from Hayao Miyazaki to Satoshi Kon. That's, what's, that's what happened. And we really had trouble in the edit room finding moments where Oshii said nice things. <laughs> so even some of those coded statements were the nicest things he could say. But he does rock a bucket hat pretty Oh, well. he looks so cool. Like Brad Pitt in Bullet Train, wished he looks as cool <laughs> as that. Um, um, before before we wrap things up, does anyone would anyone like to sort of make any comments about what you've learned from this, what you thought about it? Just since we have you all here, and we've been talking for like forty five minutes, so hand straight up here with the stripy jumper on the front on the second front row. There's a microphone coming away. <laughs> if you wouldn't mind saying your name, if you don't mind, yeah, yeah. so we can identify you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm Chloe, um, and I was just wondering, um, why is it, do you think, that Paprika was the really successful one commercially when, you know, to a lot of people, you know, Perfect Blue is that is that really big one, and I mean, they're all great in their own way, but why is it that you think Paprika's the, the really big one that did very, very well um, commercially? I mean, I love the way that it's Aya Suzuki, isn't it, that remembers it as being his Sailor Moon film, his prostitute commercial movie, which is wild to think that that was ever what that was going to be. But I wonder if it was a thing about timing, in a way. So he was he really was ahead of his time. And you think about Perfect Blue did come out over here, Manga UK released it, and that was very much a touchstone for like genre anime fans for many years. Millennium Actress, T Tokyo Godfathers didn't really get much of a release at all. However, come the mid 2000s there was more of a an understanding of japanese animation and it particularly within the festival circuit so if that premieres at venice that's premiering in the wake of hai miyazaki's films premiering in venice they had more of an understanding of using that platform or something like ghost in the shell 2 would have premiered not long before that at Cannes. so i think his time had come by that point for an international audience. It still wasn't a massive success back home. He was still very much an art filmmaker. It would have been interesting to see what Dreaming Machine would have been because that was pitching towards a more of a family audience for the first time. So I suppose that's really yeah, and, what and it was. Well, it's, Dreaming Machine is actually something that, although we do get a hint of it here, 
we know a bit more about it than this film lets on and so like would you have liked to have seen a bit more around the debate around dreaming machine because i think that is something that people are still very much engaged with now about the potential of that film because the storyboards are there and theoretically there could be someone that came in and animated those storyboards that made a non-con con film what do you think about that I, I think that's a different film. So this film being produced by Taromaki and Masao Mariyama. Masao Mariyama is the guy who holds the keys to that project. And he has said now, he talks about it every few years, but I think the most recent one is no one can do it because no one can stand, can, can fill those shoes. And I think the film gives you that sense that even though if it was Stanley Kubrick with AI, give it to who the next Stanley Kubrick is, which I suppose that fell to Steven Spielberg in the late 90s. What do you call him next? No, you wouldn't. That's you don't different... think of Spielberg as the Kubrick. So on that basis, then no, who is no, the, who is not the Kubrick? It's not the but... case of who will fit, who will sit in that chair. Yeah, it's who will correct all of those, all that artwork. Yeah. Who will come up with how it's all going to fit together on the editing level and everything else? There is this complete filmmaker that is missing, and whether it would have been Hosseda or something like that, or I think it might have even uh, landed to um, some of the other filmmakers we were looking at in there might have might have been in contention for it, some mm. of that generation. I don't think anyone, like Masashi Ando, I think, might have been in consideration for it because he's also now directed his own feature. He did The Deer King earlier this year. Um, I don't want to see that film. It'll be the kind of thing that in 30 years, if Netflix is still around, they'll announce that actually they've, they've secretly funded it. They've made it over a 10-year period. And Against it's everybody's and wishes. And it's going to get dumped on Netflix for no one to see. Um, there was another question... Just in, in the blue jumper, yes, the next row back. And then we'll come to the front row after that, thanks. Thank you, Chloe. Uh, hi there. I'm Dominic. Um, first of all, as someone who's only relatively recently discovered Satoshi Kon, I think it's amazing that he seems to be getting the recognition he deserves. Um, I thought it was interesting that Aronofsky, when talking about Perfect Blue, um, was saying that in the West we didn't really have that image of a of a pop idol, so it may have been... It may have been mm. Uh, difficult to adapt that for the West. Um, do you think Western artists have the artistry, the the understanding of the culture to adapt um, a Satoshi Kon picture? Um, and then beyond that, if I may, what would you do to prevent uh, Sato a Satoshi Kon picture being remade for the West? <laughs> How far would you go? Oh God! Oh God! Is that Taika Waititi? Is, can he can he hear us? <laughs> Um, I think yes. I, I think that, that's a really big conversation about adaptation and, and, to a certain extent, cultural appropriation as well. And I think that I think cons films all have aspects to them that can be rolled back to the kernel of something that, if given to other filmmakers and great storytellers. So, if you did make Perfect Blue in the in the in, in the X Factor generation, it would be terrible. But you could you could see how that would work. It's similar to how we think about. I feel um, like someone has already pitched it exactly with those words. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's sort of like how uh, the conversation around the remake of Train to Busan. I saw that film and I could completely see how that could be done on the um, the f seventeen forty seven train from London Euston to Manchester. Um, all of the sort of class politics, the simmering rage. And everything could absolutely work in that film. However, you just know that nobody would be assigned to that project who have the sensitivity and the vision to make, to do that. 
Um, so, but also Satoshi Kon is more than just the source material, right? It's all about the feel and the vibe. And while there are filmmakers like an Edgar Wright or somebody who does do similar things in their work, in their craft, I just don't. Yeah, I, I could see like a Millennium Actress being pitched around as well uh, for someone that, that might love. Like you could take any national cinema, I suppose, and transplant Millennium Actress into that and yeah. and make a version of it that won't be as good. Weirdly, I was just trying to, like, whilst you were talking, I was trying to think of, right, who's a, who, quickly, who's a retired actor that you could do? Like, and I was just, the first person that came to mind was Gene Hackman. Uh, that would so, be pretty fun. Like the Gene Hackman remake of Millennium Actress coming soon. But then we do have films like Millennium Actress, but it happens to be, what's the Sam Mendes film that's coming out? So the sort of, Empire the, of Light. The Love Letter to the Movies. That's such a, a, um, oh god yeah this would be the best brow. picture we should lock this down <laughs> there are so many sort of middle brow versions of that film I'm surprised that, that we don't have more um, sort of thoughtful or exciting visionary filmmakers taking on that sort of mantle but yes I th- yeah, what would we do let's just hope they're not listening would we so let's say that it's who's who's doing the adaptation we don't want to do it who'd be the worst person to adapt um what the worst no, what like Zack that Zack Snyder's Zack Snyder's Gene Hackman starring <laughs> Millennium Actress remake. Yes. Okay. And Zack Snyder is the guy behind the camera. As well. Oh, he's in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah. But surely that would be Yeah, cause, yeah, exactly. That would be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that answers your question. How far would we go? Would we I don't know, set up our own social network with our own followers to uh, hashtag unrelease the Snyder Cut. There we go. Um, and then front row here. For, for I think this we'll have to wrap up after this, I'm afraid, yeah. but uh, no pressure. Hello. Oh. <laughs> Hi, I'm Matty. I go by they, them pronouns. Um, I First of all, I really love this artwork of Satoshi Khan surrounded by all his characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I just can't stop looking at it. And we've ruined it by putting our logo on. <laughs> go, go and find the full piece because it's like a, a proper um, yeah, portrait mm. piece with, with lots of references in. It's really good. Um, so my question is, who, if anyone, would you like to see get this treatment next? Like, who would you like have you, to... Have you been reading it? <laughs> <laughs> That's so weird. I've even... I, I, He's even got I, an answer for yeah. this. Oh, perfect. <laughs> there, I've teed you up. Um, but who, yeah. who, who would you like to see get this? Oh, I mean, it doesn't have to be animation. But if if I were to narrow it down to like Japanese animation, um, Mamoru Hosoda is my is my favorite. I'm also really enjoying Makoto Shinkai's mm-hmm. movies at the minute. Um, I really like the the intertextuality between them. So like like in Paprika, where you see the um, the characters from uh, the Dreamer Machine, mm-hmm. the way that Makoto Shinkai's movies link in similar ways. Um, I think that could be an interesting arc to look at there. Well, we've got a new Shinkai next year, so well, it's it might not out be... now in Japan. Oh yeah. yeah, so we maybe we will get that documentary. Um, but from my side, um, the person that I would love to see get this treatment uh, would be Joe Hisaishi. Uh, ah. A wave of agreement fills the room. <laughs> Um, and right. so just thinking because obviously you need a nice narr- narrative arc for all of these documentaries whether that's a kind of tragic or a happy ending in this case it's a tragic ending but with the Joe Hisaishi story you can follow him working uh, on his own projects you can get him the origin story of his name which is so it's it's based on Quincy Jones so it's, it's the Japanese transliterated version Quincy Jones obviously flips with Joe as the first name 
Uh, so great, great little Yeah, go beat. And look it up. It's, it's, we've not made that up. <laughs> so um, that's, that's your kind of I'm Batman moment at the start. Um, and then we've got kind of the, the workhorse uh, doing all of his amazing stuff at Studio Ghibli. You've got the, the kind of bittersweet moment near the end um, where he does his first and last film with his Takahata and arguably makes his best score of his whole life. And then we enter the period where he becomes the global superstar. He does all of the concerts around, but everyone loves, uh, like, still, there's just the, the films, maybe less so him and the music within the films and the directors of the films. And then we arrive at the My Neighbor Totoro stage production in which he is the star and it's exec produced and it's his idea. Uh, and so that's the Joe Hisaishi story. Got to pitch it. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't. Please let us pitch it. <laughs> don't steal our it's, ideas. It's directed by Zack Snyder. <laughs> it, it's it's really something to be asked that question because it makes me realise that while I, I made that joke about BBC Four on a Friday, and you'll be you'll reliably have a documentary about the cultural legacy of the Hacienda, or it would you know yet another Rolling Stones or Paul McCartney documentary series, but we don't have that for animation or filmmaking in general. Where I where my head went, and it's another filmmaker that we've covered on our podcast who is somebody who does has name recognition in the animation world but has always been overshadowed maybe by his collaborators or the people who wrote the source material for his films but it's absolutely a legend and a character to delve into it's henry Selick. so from the nightmare before christmas through to Coraline and most recently wendell and wilde he's somebody who has as well myths to bust um, and he's also a filmmaker who whenever he's interviewed um, they always ask about were you cheesed off when The Nightmare Before Christmas came out and it was called Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas and he probably sighs a weary sigh and trots out the the answer he's been answering for 30 plus years but he's great and he also I think there'd be some fun stuff because he is a a musician a wannabe musician, a failed musician he has lots of guitars and amps in his house as well as puppets sorry so i think the, like the trajectory of that sentence was needlessly cruel wasn't it <laughs> he's a musician a wannabe musician a failed musician <laughs> take your pick but i think that'd be pretty fun to have him shredding up and maybe providing his own soundtrack for yeah. the first time um but that they're films that maybe we can come back and show <laughs> yeah, absolutely um <laughs> another I, I, animation festival yes um we, sh we should wrap up there now um but we can very much carry on talking uh we'll be out in the event space so i need books come and buy one come and chat with us uh we'd love to talk with you all um it's been a pleasure thank you so much thank you everyone planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.